PD Raw is a podcast sharing the experiences and insights of people with personality disorders or traits by being brave and talking about the things that are shameful and painful. Humans demystify and destigmatize the things that we hide. The aim of this podcast is to let others know that they are not alone. By showing the reality behind our walls, we hope to bring people closer together, connecting in a more open and authentic way. Please be aware that, due to its topic, this podcast is adults only, not safe for work, and may contain triggering content. Howdy folks, it's Few coming at you again with another episode of PD Raw. Today I am excited to have on another borderline, so somebody to join the BPD crew. Still haven't done the BPD Hour of Power episode yet with Noda, but we'll get there. And today I'm excited to have on another borderline male in particular, which is also something that I've had difficulty finding people to kind of chat with. And so I'm very glad to introduce Rich, not just BPD. And PD as well. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So yeah, I'm Rich, BPD and MPD. And I talk a lot about it on my YouTube channel, Early Morning Barking. But there's also a TikTok channel that goes along with that and a podcast and what have you. I'm also starting out in uh, BPD, MPD, life coaching, that sort of thing, doing one-to-one sessions, seeing if I can help people out with their particular problems and all that stuff. So it's there's a lot in my world that is all BPD, MPD related now. It, it's quite an odd thing. Yeah, I absolutely hear you. I mean, this has kind of taken off for me as well, surprisingly. I mean, at first I started just kind of writing on Reddit, just like commenting on our relationships. And now here I am doing some of this stuff. And Kind of the coaching thing uh, is also something that I'm interested in kind of thinking about or looking into. As other people know from one of the other episodes, I'm currently working with a partner, learning Lila, and trying to kind of figure some things out there in a (laughs) relatively safe environment, shall we say. And yeah, just kind of seeing what's possible, what you need to do before really trying to market my services. But I mean, it's kind of heartening to hear that you're in the same line of work or kind of doing the same things because I've found myself listening to your content and just being like, yep, like exactly. I've been through this moment or yep, like that's correct. So really sounds like you've done a lot of that self-work that is just kind of universal. Oh, so much (laughs) (laughs) self-work. I say that because I'm so tired now. I'm so tired of the self-work, but there's been lots of it and it's been years in the making, you know? Yeah. One of the videos that I was actually just listening to you, one of the last ones was you talked about how sometimes it's actually incredibly frustrating being around quote unquote, neurotypical people or kind of average people or normies, as some people uncharitably put it. And I think Jacob has said this too, that when you're a disordered person who's actually put in the work to heal yourself, to self-reflect, to self-scrutinize, to know how you work, to make yourself presentable to kind of society and community at large. And then you interact with some people and you see that they don't put in that level of effort or they don't have that depth of self-knowledge. And it sometimes just baffles you because you're just like, how can people not think about this? How can they not be aware of the motivations for their actions? And 
that was just a really cool thing for me to hear because I've written about having that feeling. Yeah, it's an odd one, isn't it? It still baffles me that there are people out there, that, well, most people just going through life, getting on with their day, I suppose, and not worrying about <laughs> all the same stuff that we spend all this time fine-tuning and honing and worrying about. And it's uh, in some ways, I'm jealous of them. And in other ways, I, I don't know, actually. I kind of I like how I am. Yeah, it's one of those things where you, before, I think one of the things you also said was, I'm not sure if I would have done therapy if I kind of had known like what would have changed for me or how I'd see the world differently. And But now I'm here, so I got to make the best of it. And there's something really striking about that, about once you end up in a position, you wouldn't trade anything for it no matter what. But before you get there, you have no idea what it's going to be like. Yeah, I mean, therapy destroyed everything for me. Um, it was, which is a harsh way of putting it, but it is kind of true that it got me to this point where you sort of realize this relationship isn't working. I'm not healing where I am. I'm wasting my time doing what I'm doing professionally or all Oof. of this stuff, you know, and it kind of just, it was the catalyst behind changing everything in my entire life. And I still think it's been for the better, you know, but it was a very painful transition to say the least. Well, I mean, it's just incredible to hear you say that because a lot of disordered people, whether they want to say it or not, they devalue therapy. You know, what's the point? You're just talking. Nobody else could help me anyways. Therapists aren't so smart, but you're talking about how there is a real fear there. And that fear is of the utterly immense destructive potential that this process can have for yeah. your life, your thoughts, your the things you've been doing, your relationships, because it can just completely upend them all. Absolutely. It really does. I mean, and that is in itself quite scary, but I think what you've got to realize is that the way it upends them all is by making you better and realize that these things aren't working for you anymore, that they're causing you harm, that they're hurting other people, perhaps, you know? And so you just, it's, it's more like the conclusion it drives you to. It's not like you turn up to therapy and they say, step one, dump your girlfriend. <laughs> you know, that's not what happens. Um, you know, it's, it goes, you know, you go through this very long and painful process. And of course you don't have to dump your partner or anything like that. Um, Ooh, thank you, you know, how it, how it affects you depends on your life and what's in it and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing to me still. And that therapy saved my life quite literally. Mm. I was, you know, I was at the point of being brought home by the police after being talked down off the top of multi-story car parks and that kind of level of danger in my life right. the suicidal ideation was just off the charts and that it, it's such a a painful and destructive way to live to exist day to day like is this the day is tomorrow the day that kind of thing and going to therapy getting that help saved me now i i am the exact opposite of that i don't want to die i am i you know i am terrified of dying now and getting ill and all that I, I may have gone too far the other way to be honest. <laughs> but yeah certainly not anything like suicidal anymore and we, without that therapy without that help i i don't know that i'd be sitting here talking to you now oh, and, man. you know and it's been a the other positive side of that is do you know over the last three years since that feeling went away entirely every little 
nice event, every smile, every positive thing that's happened, every laugh, everything is just that bit more. Thank God I'm here to do that. Mm, you've got that appreciation or gratitude yeah. now. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was, you know, I, I don't know that I would be otherwise, but I am. So, yay. <laughs> I suppose oh. I say, you know. Oh, this is so beautiful to hear. And yeah, I mean, some of the other people we have on the pod are kind of going through it still. And to hear from you as somebody who's kind of further down the path and on the other end and to kind of really help cement for people that it'll be painful, it'll be difficult, but there is potentially another side to this for people. It isn't the end. Oh, God, um, no. Yeah. No, no, absolutely not. None of this is the end it's you can get better you absolutely can and i think it's an indictment of mental health services all over the place that there are people who think i'm you know i have bpd now that's it right absolutely and, and there are people that come to me and they talk about getting their diagnosis like they've just been given a diagnosis of something terminal or it's like <laughs> no you, you can be all right now you know what it is you can fix it you can get help this is not you know, you're not going to die of this. Exactly. And so that, that, you know, you absolutely can get better. Yeah, it's an orienting framework to start from. And uh, there's just a million different directions I want to go in now already from what you've just said. So first, I want to say that uh, an image that came to mind when it comes to therapy is maybe the forest fire that burns everything down, but then there are, you know, trees or plants that can only release or blossom in the aftermath. And therapy being that kind of destruction, but then renewal process. But the other thing that I wanted to mention was you talking about how you take your life so much more seriously. Now you have that gratitude. And even that's something that I've seen with Burning Lila, where when she first approached me, when we were first talking, she was joking around about how you know, her five-year plan is to end up dead in a ditch at some point, being afraid of growing older and not seeing anything worthwhile in the future. And then just one of the problems that she's struggling with now, I'm not sure if she mentioned it in the last part or if we're going to talk about it in the next one, is talking about how she used to rely on that fearlessness in the face of death, that kind of calm composure, that indifference, the excitement of doing risky and destructive things. But now that's actually starting to go away for her a little bit. It's like, wait a second, there are actually experiences, like you said, that I appreciate, that I like, that I enjoy, that I want more of. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm starting to be interested in life again. Maybe it's not so bad as I grow older or yeah, just seeing somebody kind of figuring that out in real time is incredible. Yeah, it's a process you go through. It's definitely a, a slow process, but it, it's there to be had. Yeah. You know, and I'm so glad it's one I've had, you know. But as I say, any experience I've had for the last three years, I consider myself lucky to have had. So it's all good. Yeah. And I guess one more thing I'll throw in there, and then I'll ask you a bit more about your background because I actually didn't get around to that. I think that's your podcast behind the rich, and I didn't get there yet. So, you know, shame on me. But Right, about suicide and it motivating you. There have been a lot of times where people have lauded or commented me for the effort that I've put in and how far I've come. And sometimes I kind of just deadpan respond to them that, well, it was this or jump off a building. Like, there's not much choice in it. This is yeah. the only alternative to 
continuing to live a life. It was, I need to figure out a way, as you said, to kind of quiet my own thoughts and feelings, to not do things, to not live in a way that's so wrapped with anxiety, depression, and mood swings. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about coming from a similar place of, I got to make some sense out of this to make it worth it. And thankfully for us, we've both kind of done that. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it was about realizing what was motivating me. You know, it was about that realization that I didn't want to die. I didn't mm. want to be dead. I just didn't want to be in pain anymore. Yeah. And that, and that way out was the only way conceivable to me at the time that I could take to stop the pain that I was in, you know, just being in chronic pain and knowing that, you know, I'm hurting myself, I'm hurting all the people around me and all the guilt and shame associated with that. And I just wanted that to stop. And as soon as I got help, as soon as there was someone who said that you can get better, here's therapy, then that desire to end things went away fairly quickly. You know, yeah. once I, I realized that you don't have to be in pain, you can, you know, there's proper ways of dealing with this. And it was, that's what saved my life, really. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think when I was talking with Arise that we've mentioned, we we're talking about suicide and I mentioned how it used to feel for me. And it was that suicide seemed like the logical conclusion when you'd run out of options, when there is nothing else to do. But then, mm -hmm. If somebody can give you those options, so they can show you that new path, and that can be the way to get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And all the people that have ever spoken to me about suicide, you rarely hear the whole, I just want to, I, I wanted to die. It's rarely that. It's always this other thing. This, And as soon as you look at that, it all puts things in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And so, oh man, just coming in heavy right out the gates, but that is how we do it here. Yeah, Personality no, no, disorders yeah. For all. yeah. So, I mean, I guess I want to ask you a little bit now, maybe about some of your childhood or in broad sketches, like what kind of has brought you here or made you this way. I mean, for myself, I've kind of put some things out there in the first pod that I did here. I could mention some of them here just in passing in our chat. But yeah, it seems I didn't get around to that. I'm just kind of curious to see if there's any kind of parallels or similarities. I remember with Nameless Narcissist, when Nota interviewed him and I listened to his podcast, I was like, oh, I have to talk to this motherfucker. Because it was just like, oh, there are so many things in common, uh, except we went two different directions. I definitely became very borderline. He's <laughs> very narcissistic. Uh -huh. But just the traumas were very familiar. Yeah. Uh, now then. It's a complicated journey, I suppose, but then I guess at the same time, not that complicated. The way my stuff works with the BPD and the MPD, they're separate. They have separate origin stories, really, Ooh. that kind of do tie together. The BPD feelings are something that I remember from my entire life. And I, <laughs> I mean, the fears, the worries, the anxieties, the, the emotional sensitivity, all of this, I remember are interwoven with my, my earliest memories. And so it's just always been normal for me, I guess. This is just, to a certain extent, how I felt. And I think that's come from, uh, I always felt it was sort of a genetic component and a, an environmental component for me. Right. Uh, because I think I was, this is something that clearly has a long line back throughout my family. 
And this is, of course, anecdotal. BPD was defined in 79, which is the year I was born. You know, my grandmother was certainly never diagnosed with BPD. <laughs> that didn't happen. But she was notorious in her behavior and her actions and her temper and all of this that you look back and you go, yeah, BPD. And you look at other family members, myself and, and people going back and it's all there. And so that was something that I sort of remember hearing the adults talk about it when I was little. And it was always overhearing, Richard's a very sensitive child. Mm. You know, that sort of thing. He's so very sensitive. It was even that noticeable, even as a young boy. Like, yeah. People were quite aware of it. Yeah. And it's, of course, not something, you know, growing up in the early 80s, I, I was never going to be tested for anything, for mental health problems, for psychological difficulties, anything that we have now. And I certainly wasn't going to see any form of psychiatrist or anything like that. That's just that's just laughable. And so this then brings about all of the problems that being an extremely sensitive child, probably with BPD, growing up in an environment with someone else with BPD, mm -hmm. and having all of their anxieties and fears and worries put on me and becoming part of my life. And, you know, part of my healing process has been coming to see the, that experience for what it was, that that was somebody who loved me very much and had a lot of worrying about me because they wanted only good things for me. But that in turn brought about an environment that was extremely stressful and anxious and difficult to exist in, especially for someone with a, a BPD level of sensitivity themselves. Yeah, it, you kind of pick up on everything and somebody's kind of trying to over control you or if their anxieties are spilling out. And just one other thing, the family having a history of mental illnesses, definitely speaking my language on that one, you know, mm -hmm. aunts, grandmother, and particularly seeing some things happening with some family members as they get older and things become more pronounced. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's there. It predates us. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I've always thought that that BPD and all the problems that that brought, coupled with, as I would now say, ADHD as well, going through my GCSEs, my A-levels, or through sort of what you would call high school, that was when things started to happen that brought about this NPD, this narcissistic defense that needed to go up because it was in my late adolescence when you're doing exams to get into college, you're you know, the stress and worry about me was at its peak and the worst. And those years sort of 15 to 18 were just a few years of prolonged trauma mm. and, you know, emotional stress constantly for that period. And all surrounding things like academic achievements, a comparison of academic achievement to my friendship groups and friends and peers at school all the pressure to do well, to go to university, to do God knows what I was wanted to do that would lead me to what someone else deemed to be the best kind of career for me to have and that kind of thing. And that was when, looking back, I noticed the behavior started that you could start saying was, well, this is the beginning of the MPD. This is where the lying about one's own achievements and one's abilities to look better, to hide, to not worry others. You know, and when I started failing academically to cover that up, to feel better about that, to justify that. And then this sort of grew and grew as I moved further and further away from this intended life 
that I was meant to have of, you know, do your A-levels, go to university, get a degree, leave university, get a job related to that degree, meet someone at university, fall in love, get married, have children, buy a house, et cetera, et cetera. The further I got away from that, the greater the guilt, the greater the shame, and the more I needed to defend against all of that internally. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I just have to say that you can really hear so clearly there. One of the ways that I've phrased to people about how people become narcissistic sometimes is when they are really strongly defined from the outside in rather than the inside out. And mm-hmm. So you're saying that you have these pressures immense on you and it's there's a lack of safety, of vulnerability of even if I'm not good at this, I'll be good at something else. So I know who to turn to, to share this with, to help me. Or no, it's just there's this crushing weight from the outside. If you can't get out from under, you don't know what you're going to do. And so, of course, yeah, you lie, you put up a facade, you try to do other things to compensate. But that is because nobody has really kind of held or made you feel safe just inside yourself. And so this thing comes along that seems like it's going to end you in mm-hmm. one way or another. And I mean, you have to do something to protect yourself from it. Absolutely. And for me, it was as I ran out of more and more options, as I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I grew up in a situation where there was a wrong answer to the question, what do you want? And, you know, like that shouldn't, it's impossible for there to be a wrong answer to that. But there was for me. Which one would you like? That Not that one. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. And so, you know, when you're growing up with BPD and you having trouble developing that personality and it's being imposed upon you, you eventually reach this point of having to defend against that in some way. And that was how it went for me. So it went from sort of that guilt and shame about feeling an academic, failing an academic achievement. And then moving on to starting business and not doing as well as I wanted to there and having to deflect from that for a very long time. And then even when things had been going there well for a while, there was still all of the, you know, I worked very much in the public eye and it was necessary to be this larger than life, dominant Steve Jobs-esque kind of person in what I did. And it just, I became this arrogant narcissistic, egocentric, self-centered person who was the genius of the world, who knew the way everything should be, and tried to impose myself onto everybody else. Very much like I'd grown up with, you right. know, with this figure that, you know, I know the way things should be. You should do it like this. And if you're not doing what I'm telling you to do it is by default then wrong. And so I became that in my own work as an adult. And, you know, that's fairly obnoxious. It's not long before people don't really like you. And so it becomes, it becomes a problem. Yeah. It really works against you. Something that's kind of interesting there is you're talking about how you had that kind of strong presence saying what's right or wrong and imposing from the outside when you're younger. But you also talk about how sometimes in society, we sort of seem to get messages that push us in this way. Like, this is how you become the next Steve Jobs. So this is what a leader is. He knows everything. They're the one or she. They're the ones who say what people do and they're infallible. You respect their authority. And so mm-hmm. sounding like you're kind of getting nudged into that role from a couple of directions, not just one. Yeah, absolutely. And I felt that was just the way you did things, right? That was the right way to be, the right way to behave. And besides, I could do that because I'm right. 
You know, I'm the I'm the genius that's pulling the strings here. You are there to have the strings pulled. So I, you know, there's nothing really wrong in what I'm doing or the way I'm treating you or whatever. And yeah, I, you know, mentioning Steve Jobs, I idolized that man for a long time. And, you know, the bit that I looked over was that everyone who knew him said, hey, this man can be a total arsehole, you know, right? He's not a nice guy. He's not somebody. He's, there are people who talk fondly of him, who knew him very closely. But by and large, people who met him have all got the story about that day he went nuts and that sort of thing. And, you know, you gloss over that bit. But then when you do it yourself, you think, well, it's, this is just part of the process, you know? Yeah, don't, and, don't bother the genius here. Yeah, the portrait artist, or you know, the uh, genius who kind of acts out and is a kooky or something like that. That's but, it, indeed. Yes, another thing that I've heard quite a few times. This is from people who are ASPD, NPD, and that is like you kind of you just said uh, right now. Other people are there for you to treat in this way, like that's their job or their role. And one of the common things I've heard from these ASPD people is not seeing people as people or that there's only kind of a limited list of people whose interiority they actually care about and Mm -hmm. not so much everybody else. And I was wondering, how does that kind of sit or fit with you as NPD, BPD? I know with borderlines, we tend to have more of an engagement with emotions and taking things seriously. Then hearing you say that was kind of really curious. Yeah. Now, I'm much better than I was. But, you know, I've, I I think I've said a lot on various things. I don't have that full NPD, that lack of empathy, that ability to just dehumanize people. That BPD and its damn empathy keeps me under so much. (laughs) The the evil I could do if it weren't for that, (laughs) for that damn BPD and its guilt and its shame and its emotional empathy. I can hear that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, the number of times when I've, <laughs> the number of times I've had a discussion where I'm trying to solve a problem, like a work thing, and I'm I'm talking to ideas about my about it to my girlfriend, and it'll eventually get to something that I've suggested, and she'll just stare at me and go, you can't do that. Like, why can't I do that? <laughs> because you're actually a good person. And I'll stand there and go, oh, damn it. Right. Okay. I need to keep thinking then. Uh, that kind of thing. And it's right. It does hold me back. Thank that, goodness. That does um, remind me with Burning Alila, where I think she said that at one point her roommates had to explain to her why doing like cybercrime or identity theft is a bad thing or you shouldn't do it. Just sometimes you need that external battery from other you, people. You do. To be the voice of conscience. Absolutely. Now, I look, this dehumanizing people, I have absolutely experienced that. But it's for me, you have to push me to that point. Yeah right? It doesn't just happen with everybody. And, you know, it won't happen for everybody with pure MPD either, because you've got to have people to talk to, right? You can't hate everybody. You've got to have some people that you see as equals. But yeah, some of my worst times, my worst moments, the worst things I've said and done to people have been people who have managed to cross that line where I've switched off in my head and gone, right, it's now on. It's now, this is it. It's on like Donkey Kong. Yeah, I am sorry, but now I have to destroy you. And I will feel happy about that, you know. And I don't know how to feel about that because while I would never want to do that now, I can still think back to the times that I did it and get a big smile on my face. 
Mm, you now, know? now this this is something that I've made quite some notes about, which is something I really appreciate, which is some of the honesty that you have in talking about, yeah, with some of these disordered behaviors, people do them for a reason. It feels good, or in some circumstances, it seems warranted. And I mean, even myself, I'm just kind of sitting here with a small smile nodding of exactly like you flipped the switch and there are some people you're just like, all right, that's it. This is done. Like there's... No more room for friendship, vulnerability, connection. You're a combatant, and this is going to go the way it's going to go. And I'm going to think no two ways about it. Yeah. And this is something that I am really kind of curious about getting into with somebody because even now, I think that it's something which I really hate doing. For me, I have a hard time completely flipping the switch with dehumanizing. There's always a part of me that also cares. So it's also excruciating even when I'm doing something aggressive to people and it takes me a long period of recovery. So that's kind of not being NPD in mm. my case. But it's one of those things where I think there are times where when you have presumptions of hostility and you're paranoid or you're overcompensating, when you can be a dick and it's pretty awful and... Yeah, like that's unwarranted and unjustified. But then there are other situations where there are other people who are doing the same thing. Or there are other people who are doing things who are motivated out of a desire for sadism or for control. Mm -hmm. And in situations like that, it's sort of like, well, yeah, okay, like this person's looking for a scrap. Like this is a combat. I should be able to flip into that mode to deal with them. And I guess I just kind of wonder where you see yourself as falling as kind of defensively dealing with people who are trying to harm you or if you're preemptively engaging these things because it's fun. I think that's more of an ASPD psychopathic thing. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> there were certainly times when I have spent time arguing over pointless crap on social media just to wind people up. Right. That's that has definitely been a thing. And that's when I do well, that was when I was in the depths of my sort of cat playing with mice kind of mm -hmm. phase. Uh, as I see it, it's that you're I'm just gonna play with you and I'm gonna make you get so angry and so wound up while I sit here laughing my cock off at you. And it will be so much fun. And I used to do that a lot with people because they were just, you know, they were mine to play with. And I was bored and that sort right. of thing. You know, but now it's a very defensive thing. And I don't know that it ever happens sort of preemptively because, like I said, I need to be pushed to a point. And up until that point, I can be reasonable, would prefer to walk away from the situation kind of guy. But yeah, you can, it's that defensive thing. And it's, you know, there's no secret where this is coming from. It's somebody telling me what to do. You know, it's somebody trying to control me. And when you look back at my childhood and what that was like and all that sort of thing, of course I kick back off about that now. And that's something, it, it's somebody, you know, in times when somebody's tried to be bigger than me or stronger than me or think they're able to impose themselves upon me in some way, that's when I've kicked back the most and the hardest. Right. Um, Anything else I can just walk away from. Call me names, whatever. I don't give a shit. You know, that's all fine. But when somebody's trying to tell me what to do or tell me I'm wrong or whatever, that's when things really start to 
get wound up. And I like to think now I couldn't get to that phase. But, you know, luckily I've not been tested on that for quite some time. So I'm just assuming it's right. Yeah, but just it, knock on wood over here. Yeah. Let's hope it stays that way. Yeah. It's one of those things. But all we can do is just keep trying and keep practicing and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's like I say, it's the wor- the times when I've said the worst things to people has been once the dehumanizing switch gets flipped, then all bets are off. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much there that resonates with me. There's some that's different. I think for me, usually when I kind of go off is when there's intentional sadism or manipulation. Like (laughs) the things that hurt me the most are never anything that somebody says, but when they are intending to hurt me or try to. And like you, usually I will try to reconcile, which is (laughs) sometimes the very wrong thing to do. So then I'll try to cut people off or kind of walk away if it's clear that that's kind of the only way this is going to go. You know, sometimes snippily, but nonetheless, walk away. And I've been in numerous situations where, you know, people have kind of tried to prevent me from just walking away or leaving or just having something settled. And that's kind of when the claws come out. And as you said, saying the worst things imaginable, in my case, kind of not a matter of saying the worst things imaginable, but just demonstrating or doing things that are going to act on other people's emotions or feelings in excruciating ways. And just leaving them with that, just kind of like, well, that's it. That's how this ends. And yeah, I... It takes a lot to get me there, and I hope that I mercifully never have to be there again. But it does seem like something where, particularly as disordered people, when you can recognize these characteristics in other people, or even one of the things I'm interested in in a longer-term project is kind of social-political analysis of how some of this drives social movements of some of the crazy shit that we see happening nowadays. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how do you maintain yourself as a positive, optimistic, functional person who wants to do the best in the world, wants to see the best in people and to try to really make change? But you still have that touch of that side that's willing to kind of draw swords, who's willing to clash, who's willing to deal with people when they bring things like this to you, as either people have already done for us or sometimes even we do to other people. Um, gosh, how do I deal with that? (laughs) (laughs) Just the light questions, you know? Yeah. I mean, like I say, I'm doing quite well at the walking away from things. I'm not a hundred percent at it. There are days when I, God, there was a day last week when I didn't do anything at all, because if I sat down to make a video, there was only anger coming out. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those days of, do you know what? Just step away. Just step away. Don't make the thing that you have to apologize for later and yeah. take down and that sort of thing. Just step away. And that, depending on the thing, can be easy or hard. It's definitely frustrating because I want to get work done. But this thing has come in and taken over my mind. And it can be, you know, it could be a comment on something. It could be a, an email I've had. It could be another video that I watched. It could be a number of other videos that I've watched all ganging up together. And once I get in that state, it's just, just walk away from it. And I've, you know, that's just me on my own at home that can happen. I've not had any, I can't remember the time I had some sort of confrontation with a stranger as part of my day-to-day life. You know, it's Mm -hmm. thankfully things like that are pretty rare, you know, and that's generally when those, that 
bad stuff came out. But I think as long as I identify that it's happening and, and sort of move away. And I, do you know, I also get a lot by turning up the narcissism, by allowing myself to be so far above the person that is bothering me that yeah. it's, it's ridiculous that they're bothering me. You know, it's that idea of, you know, I'm not bothered when a goat in the barnyard bleats at me because it's just a goat and it's making a noise. And that is how I feel about this person. And it would be as ridiculous to be upset at this person talking to me as a goat bleating at me in a farm, you know, and that's, it's narcissistic. It is, but there was no confrontation there. There was no rage. There was no, it's some way of, I found of dealing with it. I don't know if it's positive or not. I think there's a lot to that. Like even as you were saying about how you would sometimes go and troll people online. And so sometimes you see these other people and it's like, oh, you're just trolling. Okay. Like I don't have to take this seriously and I'm above this. I'm somebody who's trying not to have this in my life, either by doing it or receiving it. And yeah, it sounds reasonable for you to devalue people when that's the type of spirit or feelings that they're trying to bring to you. And also just hearing you talking about trying to motivate yourself to walk away or to take that pause because you're thinking later of what's the cleanup going to look like or what are the after effects going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very good mechanism for anybody who's listening, who's disordered, who hasn't heard it yet to really train yourself to do that as kind of second instinct. You rarely ever do the things that are good for you, quote unquote, because it really feels good in the moment, or at least not always. It's always in hindsight. And when you look back and you get that satisfaction or fulfillment, or you're sitting on the rewards of having done something properly, you're like, ah, right. Like, this is why I didn't rage out on this stranger or do this thing that would be really bad and destructive for me. Yeah. You have to get that. Once you start getting that positive reinforcement to doing the right thing, it gets easier and easier. I think any sort of confrontational situation, the, the question that I learned to ask myself was, what do I want to get out of this? Right. What is the outcome I would really like? And once you start asking yourself that question, then you then have to ask, what is the best way to get that? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's the answer to that is never shouting at someone until they cry. You know, it's usually like smiling and being friendly and other things like that. So you start trying it. And, you know, if it doesn't work, you can go back to shouting at the next person. That's that's fine. <laughs> but you start to give it a go and it works. And you resolve a conflict without stress, without all the, the upset. And that in itself feels good. And then you feel doubly good because you didn't get upset. You did it. You know, it's great. And it snowballed from there for me. It was, well, I'm going to try that again. And, you know, now I just, I rarely, if ever, get angry at things, you know? And I think noticing other people's motivations, understanding that maybe they're going through some shit as well. Maybe they're taking out their BPD on me, you know, all that kind of thing. That helps immensely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that kind of riles people up or even riles us up a lot is when you see people doing things and you kind of take it personally when you're unsure of what their intentions and motivations are and you're kind of thinking, how does this relate to me? Or what does this mean to me? Is there something here that's actually worth engaging with? Do I have to take it seriously? And when you start yeah. having that mentality of being able to just say, oh, okay, like this is more about them and where they're coming from. 
than it does anything about my life or kind of what's going on. I mean, if there isn't kind of trust or intimacy with somebody, you already know that they're going to have most likely an incomplete picture of things that they say to you. And so if they bring a lot of seeming anger or hostility or criticism, maybe there's something that's going on that you can kind of get under the surface with and calm them down. And if you can't, then it's probably not on you and it's beyond your remit to be able to solve it. And so just kind of walking away with your head held high and with your dignity intact is some of the best ways to get through those difficult moments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Doing the right thing is sometimes difficult and it sometimes doesn't feel as good as blowing up. You know, that explosion, that rage, sometimes it feels really good and it feels like you've solved a problem. But I, I don't know. I just had to go back to too many places to apologize. Mm-hmm. And it, I just couldn't keep up with it. I couldn't keep on with it. Yeah, very different kind of walk of shame. But <laughs> yeah, I can just imagine just kind of having to eat crow so many times over and over and eventually just got to be like, okay, like I want to avoid this nonsense again. Yeah, that's it's a painful thing to kind of have to relive over and over. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I just don't care to go through it again, really. And hopefully I won't, but we'll see. Yeah. And all right. So let me just look over this list that I have of some things that I wanted to chat about with you that I thought were really cool that I'd heard so far. So I guess one thing I'll talk about that we already kind of mentioned a little bit, it's just the different modalities and things that work with people and kind of this life coaching stuff that you're thinking of doing right now. Uh And yeah, I know that I've heard you say that like you've done DBT that hasn't quite worked with you. You did group therapy that made all the difference in your life and was really helpful. Seeing other people kind of cast aspersions on group therapy and kind of they really didn't get what they were looking for out of it. And then also with myself, I know that I tend to prefer working with people one-on-one if like I'm fine being in groups, but for really kind of following up with some of these nuances and details with people, kind of wanting to give them my full and undivided attention. And so, yeah, I guess I was just kind of curious about what types of experiences or maybe thoughts or reflections you have on how to reach people or what's kind of most useful for them to hear or experience. One of the things obviously with group therapy is you hear different things from other people and it pulls you out of yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't say that any type of treatment is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I think different things work for different people and that depends on who you are as a person and what you're going through and your particular set of issues. And so it was CBT that I tried Um, and that didn't work at all for me. That wasn't appropriate treatment for me at the time. And I I wouldn't say that CBT is awful. Don't do it. Not not at all. Uh, It's just that didn't work for me at the time. And indeed, throughout the three and a half years in group, there were people that came and went. It wasn't the same group on my last day that it was on my first day by any stretch, you know, from an initial group of I want to say seven or eight, there were three of us that stayed until it was time to not go anymore, you know, and other people left for various reasons. 
over the course of that. And they were occasionally new people would come in and they'd stay for a few weeks or a few months and then they'd decide, no, this isn't working and they'd go. And I'm not, I, I can't tell those people they were wrong or anything like that. Maybe that wasn't the right type of situation for them, but it sure as hell helped me. And it, it helped other people there. I watched it happen. And so it was a, just a great experience, an absolutely great experience. And for me, what really made it, I'd had one-on-one -on -one counseling before, I, I would say, rather than therapy. Um, okay. I spent, you know, before I managed to get into group, I'd spent 20 years being diagnosed as just having depression because that's what doctors oh. say you have, isn't it? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, you've got depression. Here's some antidepressants. Go away. And so, you know, I tried that. I'd not got anywhere with it, obviously. And then the CBT didn't work. What I enjoyed with the group therapy was, as you say, having other people there. And that does provide you with quite a few interesting opportunities that aren't there in one-to-one -one therapy. In that, I mean, first of all, you get a frame of reference for yourself. You hear how bad you are compared to other people, what other people go through, all that kind of thing. And it, it is comforting. It sounds weird to say it, but to see other people in pain like you is comforting. There's security in that group of we're going through something similar and it's not just me. And that's good because they thought it was just them before they met you as well. So yeah. it's, you know, it's this reciprocal thing. And, and then as you're on that healing journey together, you have people there to turn up to and say, look, this happened this week. Was I the crazy one? <laughs> you know, and to have other people there and support you and either tell you, yeah, you were the crazy one there, dial it back a bit, mate, or no, you're fine. It's the other people. You aren't as mad as you think you are. It's kind of um, funny. You're using the group as the subreddit, am I the asshole, just showing up to everybody and uh, yeah. <laughs> making that post. Yeah. And that was part of it for us all. It, <laughs> it was that being able to bounce ideas off each other because, you know, a lot of you are looking for the right way to behave. You're relearning behaviors, you're relearning reactions to things, all, all this sort of stuff. And you don't know what they are. You think you do, but you're not sure. And you've certainly not been doing them. And so you need to, it's so helpful to be able to turn up and go, yeah, this happened. And I'm not sure what to make of it. And, you know, talk things through. Well, also to be able to make it real with people who you actually see as your peers, people who you think will understand because they have been in this place of pain and it's not like it would be, you would bring this to somebody who, you know, kind of you think is blemishless or doesn't have some of these cognitive distortions that you'd feel so ashamed to try and put yourself out there before them. Yeah. And that being able to do that is part of the healing process, you know, being able to share stuff with other people and to see them as peers like you. I, part of my initial uh, apprehension with going to group therapy was what the hell am I going to do with these other morons in this room <laughs> with these people who haven't got a clue what's going on they're just idiots and I'd not been to a single thing yet and I was definitely decided I'm going to sit in a room full of mouth-breathing morons and you know god I remember going through my list of worries with the therapist before we started and they're all such a laugh now <laughs> like I remember, I, I didn't want to go because I was in, you know, it's the sort of thing where everybody like will turn up and you'll say, would everyone like to get a drink? And then we'll spend an hour as everyone needs to get a damn drink. If they can't <laughs> sit there. And then we'll have to wait another half an hour for everyone to go to the fucking toilet. And, you know, because, oh, because I just hated other people. I didn't even believe they could sit in another room with me for an hour and a half. 
um and so to eventually be forced to do that and like you turn up and go oh yeah that we don't have drinks here and you eventually we don't have drinks here so they don't throw them at me and that kind of thing and you know and it turned out to be nothing like i thought it would and you know it turned out to be a really positive experience so i I mean i got to jump in there for a second i'm really glad you shared that because that's so interesting how you escalate these petty grievances these very shallow superficial things and usually to do with kind of like corporeality people going to the washroom having to drink and the inconvenience that they're going to give to you then that lack of kind of curiosity of the perspectives they're going to give you of the different things that could come out of them and just this particular way of dragging people down Another thing that I'll share from Burning Lila going over to visit her was uh, one of the things she was worried about before I came was me judging her for how she slept <laughs> for sharing a bed. It's, to me, in my mind, it's like, how could that possibly be something that you think of judging somebody for? Like, there's so much more to people than to devalue them for such a small thing. But you get into that mindset when you have all that pain inside that really makes you want to see other people as less than and those become legitimate kind of criticisms or fears that you have. So that's a super interesting one to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I could hate people for all kinds of reasons. It came so naturally. <laughs> yeah, it fair. came so naturally. So yeah, being put in a room with people and being, you know, you'll listen to these people, you'll hear what they've got to say and you'll talk to them and you'll realize that they're not just a bunch of morons at all and they are going through something similar to you and that you know the way the group dynamic worked is we weren't all the same but you know everybody every problem everyone had someone had something that kind of overlapped with it you know i'm I'm told that you know picking the right people for the group is part of the you know the skill of the therapist running the session that sort of Mm. thing that you're not just picking eight random patients and going hey group together these are carefully selected people and it, it was run very well and very carefully and with a great deal of knowledge and skill, I think, on the part of the, the people running it. They were fantastic. I could never thank them enough for the work that they did. And it's, yeah, it's amazing what a difference it made because it is just sitting and talking, you know? It is. And I don't know how it helped, but it did. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things where I try to impress upon people when they're sort of disordered, they usually think, what are feelings? I'm above this. I know what I'm doing. Like it's defined. It's logical. People who have empathy for others, like what a bunch of bleeding heart, insert not nice word here. And it's just words are so incredibly powerful. I mean, like think about the words you use when you end a relationship or you accept a new job or you meet somebody who's going to be a lifelong friendship and the things you say to facilitate that. I mean, words can have as, do have as powerful effect on us as drugs do. And people underplay, they undersell that when they think that they're just going to go to therapy and that it is just words when you can be making real these traumas that have happened to you in the past or you're bringing with you these situations that are currently happening to you in this space in a way that you can't really do like you're you're not physically bringing these other people or these other locations with you there but you're doing that emotionally with the words that you share with people and i think maybe there's been a point where when i've been 
not doing as well and more self-focused where, yeah, I undervalued the importance of those words. I've always been kind of more open to seeking treatment. I think that's, again, kind of more the borderline thing. Mm. But to hear people kind of undersell it so often is just kind of fascinating. And it's one of those things that I'm sort of interested in, in trying to figure out, well, how do you explain to people beforehand? How do you give them an adequate concept of just how changing this can be of what you're really doing with these words in these spaces and kind of preparing people for it? Yeah, I never figured out how you do that because it sounds, however I put it, sounds ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's no good way of putting it. You're going to go and sit and you're going to go and talk to someone for about an hour once a week. And then you'll be better in three years. (laughs) 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 What? (laughs) Trust me, it works. You just go and sit in a room and talk to someone for an hour a week. It's about three years, right as rain. And it sounds ridiculous. It really does. And I don't know how to make it not sound ridiculous other than by just telling people what my experience was and how it worked for me. I was always stunned at at what little input the therapists have, Mm. that they won't even say hello when you arrive. You know, that initial, that sit down and that you just sit and look at each other until you start talking. It's, uh, you know, they don't want to lead you in any direction whatsoever because they know what, whatever is going to come out of you is going to be the thing that was at the front of your mind (laughs) and they don't want to skip the queue or anything. They need you to just open up to them. And it's amazing how that works. Oh yeah. I mean, it's fascinating when you go through it sometimes and you start picking up on those little skills or tips here. And sometimes you start incorporating them or you're just like, God damn it. I see what you're doing, but it really works. You make sure to not project or interject yourself into it, or especially I can imagine in group therapy where you really want to get people talking to each other. If you don't want it to be about yourself or to be guiding and even that process of figuring out how to open up to one another in the group is a part of the whole point of the treatment. I I seem to remember, I think our record as a group was about 20 minutes into a session before anyone spoke. (laughs) Yeah, that reminds me when I did psychoanalysis and just, yeah, there could be times where I'd just be sitting on this couch for like 30, 40 minutes and not saying a word and all right, then we just fucking sit there and just silence. And yeah, that's how it would be. That happened several times. And the therapist would occasionally speak up and say, I wonder what everybody's thinking right now in an attempt to sort of come on, (laughs) you know, but you know, we could sit there defiantly through that quite happily as a group. (laughs) What are we thinking? No, try harder. You know, (laughs) I'm just going to come out of that. But it was, you know, just a wonderful experience all the way through. And I, if anyone listening gets the chance at therapy, just take it, just try it. Because it's, again, it's not like it's invasive medical treatments or something like that. It's not going to, you're just going to sit in a room and talk. So if you don't like it, don't go back. It's fine. Again, we're kind of at that interesting thing where people devalue and undersell what they think therapy or treatment can offer, but at the same time, it holds so much immense potential. 
And sometimes I think that with disordered people, they're actually devaluing it or they're fearful of it because they know just how, in some way, how powerful and destructive it can be or the pain of the places it would bring them to. Or even, even if the change is a good one and for the better, it's still a massive change in an upheaval. And I do think sometimes for some people, you really got to gather yourself and gather the strength to be ready to undertake that journey. It's not something you can really kind of come to at any point in your life and be ready to do the work. No, absolutely. It's. I think we're all looking for that. If not a pill that I can take, then, you know, can I just go and they do a thing and I'm fine after that? And, you know, being told, no, this is going to take years and it's going to fucking hurt. You are going to have to face all those things that terrify you. You are going to have to talk about them and deal with them. And on an individual level, we know what those things are. We know what our childhood traumas are, what our past traumas are. They're bottled up inside and keeping us awake at night. And we don't want to face them. So why would you want to go to group? You know, Why would you want to go to therapy? They're going to make you look at all that shit that you are terrified to look at. And I get why you wouldn't want to do that. You know, it's, it's exposure therapy for yourself. And that is stressful. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. And uh, I've been thinking about making this point for like 15, 20 minutes now. But just in terms of talking about therapy and group, I would be in remiss if I didn't mention the sub, which is kind of how I've started getting into this and how we're now talking, you know, meeting nameless narcissists, seeing a couple of your videos, clicking on them. And kind of where I've made myself a little working base to be trying to figure out what's going on or how to reach people. And the sub has definitely been a sort of group or a place where for a lot of people, they can draw inspiration from one another, can receive that validation or sense of security of it isn't just them. They see other people and their peers reflected to them or they can feel like they can open up and not be judged or persecuted for it. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that kind of plans me the most or kind of puts a smile on my face when people either at the beginning or the end of their posts type that they wouldn't usually say things like this, but this sub has been so open or inviting or people there are so empathic for <laughs> at least other people's <laughs> NPD and fucked up shit, if else, which is you know, quite ironic. There's also somebody else who's mentioned before that the therapist has kind of looked at this up at some points and been like, this is one of the most empathic places on the internet. And so, yeah, there's been this sort of therapy, if hesitant to say, you know, actual therapy, because this podcast is not legally actionable. But yeah, it's been really good for a number of people, including myself. And some of us have gotten things out of it. Some of us are still sticking with it. I mean, particularly Noda and myself. We met on the sub and here we are with this kind of friendship in this project and endeavor that we're undergoing, trying to catalog all these different voices and different points on the journey of disorders and differing disorders. And it's just... Yeah, trying to get that proof out there to people of what can happen and who's out there and what they can offer you. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. And I think, I mean, particularly more so within the NPD space, it's important right. to have that that community that is a, a safe situation for you to talk about honestly the stuff that's going on in your brain. 
because we think some dark stuff. We think some truly terrifying things. And, you know, with the best will in the world, our romantic partners, our families, our friends aren't necessarily either cut out to hear that or ready to hear that. And, you know, I think some of that darker stuff could could quite easily change people's position on you as a person, you know? um, And so just letting it out anywhere is potentially a a dangerous thing to do. And having somewhere like a subreddit or a discord or, you know, a YouTube channel in my case, (laughs) where you can just say this stuff is so important to be able to do. And cause you know, like we were talking about earlier, it gives you that relativity. It gives you that stick by which to gauge yourself compared to other people. And it's important to be able to do that. I think when you're healing. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know if you kind of feel this. So again, I think I've heard you say before that like the deep well of empathy that some borderlines get is something that the NPD side has kind of kept in check. So that's not quite as much your experience, but I know for myself having not just empathy, but also almost skinlessness of being enmeshed with the environment and other people and being unable to sometimes prevent their feelings from intruding. And so a part of what has been difficult for me of going through my journey or kind of my life is recognizing or feeling from people that they have these dark things bubbling underneath the surface, but they can't say it, they can't acknowledge it, or they're perhaps almost entirely rightly afraid of what would people do if it were exposed, if they knew these thoughts, if I were vulnerable before them, and the threats of social ostracization. But at the same time, I'm somebody who both had disordered thoughts, has their own diagnoses. So, I mean, I have some of that draw towards negative emotionality of that pull of empathy and also just willing to be there with people to actually hold open space to talk about it, discuss it, kind of hopefully just laugh about it and minimally actually doing it. And so the sub has been really important for me to just kind of calibrate my own reality of being like, right, this is what's going on. And this is how people operate and being able to figure out how to still hold open space or be in community with people like that to still be close to them has been something that's been immensely important for me that I've gotten out of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think we do struggle to get close to people, to say the least. And any opportunity to do that is is only positive. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wonder, like, what are some of the maybe points in your life for some of the things where you really felt that you had some of those difficult, like, negative thoughts and it was hard for you to kind of share them? I know you were mentioning about the failures and obviously those are kind of like shameful difficult thoughts as i say with kind of burning lila though it's something where she feels a lot more relaxed and at ease around me because she can share her country fuckingly bad thoughts with me or kind of talk about wanting to steal my wallet while she's giving me a back massage (laughs) or you know sometimes those like stupid little impulses or desires but actually holding open space and not judging for it. The way I always, I found of getting it out was to do it in a, I managed to sort of craft myself this persona of being able to tell jokes around my narcissism 
or no, around my narcissistic traits at the time and have people not really know if I'm joking or not. (laughs) You know, there was a common trope of me talking about running the world and that sort of thing. And everyone's he's, he's always joking about taking over the world and thinking he could do it better than everybody else. And I'm thinking, yeah, joking. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I haven't based my entire business on the plot of the villain in Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond film. No, no. Yeah. It's all a joke. Yeah, just that strategic <laughs> ambiguity of how to kind of flirt with or just run straight up to the line and it's interesting because this is also something that i've sort of noticed sometimes with disorder people is i mean obviously we more people give themselves away even when you think you aren't you can be acting in a way where you kind of think that you're hiding things but other people are like there's clearly something up here but then even aside from that and i think maybe i think I was listening to one of your videos and then I watched the Jimmy Savile documentary because you mentioned Jimmy Savile. And the same thing happened with him that I think I've seen with a lot of other people where they almost compulsively tell on themselves. They give people these hints, these clues, these jokes. They say it out loud and Mm -hmm. people don't call them on it because of social niceness or because people don't understand where it's coming from. They can't anticipate. But there is this way in which even when you're doing things that are antisocial or negative towards other people, that you still hunger for recognition. You still want to be known. You still want to be seen and validated. So even when you're hiding it, there's also a way in which you're desperately longing to not hide it. Sad sort of ring a bell or make sense yeah it does it does you're trying to get it out and you know that you mustn't or you i don't know sometimes you're aware of the absurdity of it all (laughs) um but yeah generally in the, the narcissism side of things we if we can tell you what we're doing we will because we want you to know and it, and if we can tell you what we're doing and have you know and you not dare do anything about it that's just that's that's the dream isn't it you know that's that's the absolute dream and yeah there are many examples jimmy savile is one i would point the finger at a a recent president as another yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you exactly everything i'm doing wrong i'm gonna you will know but you don't do anything hopefully the president that we're thinking of is the now mercifully multiply indicted one yes (laughs) (laughs) well this is the trouble when you base your defense on something that really only lasts a few years and then you're just some guy again and uh, (laughs) and the fbi are not your friend yeah (laughs) that's that's how that goes Um, yeah we should try to make sure to not make this podcast too overtly political. But yeah, I mean, that is that is definitely one that's been interesting to see about, again, somebody who made their defense reveling in the shamelessness, being profligate in their duplicity and their flouting of any sort of pro-sociality. And then once that comes tumbling down and people come looking for their pound of flesh, it crashes hard. And I think that can happen on a, well, obviously it does happen on a smaller scale. Yeah. And I, you know, I actually made a video about it. Interestingly enough, my, my, my <laughs> least viewed video of all time on my oh. entire channel to this day, the least viewed video is one where I, I, you know, you could see the collapse, this per the narcissistic collapse this person was going through 
at the mm-hmm. time. And I made a video saying, you know, politics aside, I I, I feel what this dude's going through. Yeah. I, I've I felt that. I you know, he's built up his world with his things that he believes, and it's now all crumbling around him. And I've I it's a horrible feeling. He feels like shit right now. He's panicking. He's full of anxious. He's on, you know, damage control. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, again, it was interesting to watch from my point of view. Someone else clearly going through that. That's and so you know, and still continuing in their life to live out the consequences of what they've done. You know, as you say, mu- multiple indictments and things like that. The the consequences are going to come for him for a long time, one way or another. And it's you know. If, not to that extent, because I've never been a president, but I've had my narcissistic world collapse, and I know what that feels like, and it's it's horrible. Oh, that's such a shame that that's one of your least viewed videos, because again, obviously, no <laughs> love here uh, lost for the person in question, let that be said, but at the same time, you know, let's not be black and white dichotomous thinking about things. It's interesting, first of all, exactly like you said, you know this experience or you kind of see something in there in yourself because it's just another person something that somebody goes through something that probably many people have gone through but also something that's interesting to just clue into me as you were saying that is for a lot of disordered people when collapse comes the exposure the amount of publicity or the amount that people get to witness it is what makes it all the more excruciating to kind of have your shame on parade before everybody and for the person in question who we're talking about to kind of be turned inside out meticulously and cleanly on the world stage i mean you want people kind of would maybe have more sympathy if somebody showed remorse if they showed recalcitrance if they acknowledged to the culpability but you want somebody to show that when it kind of when we're talking about that crushing weight on people, uh, talking about your childhood earlier, you have this humongous boulder of having everything being exposed to everyone in all places. And it's there's no room to kind of be a human, to do an about face, to kind of do your conversion on your deathbed and ask for forgiveness in this arena you already have made your career on not being vulnerable on being superior on being grandiose and to now then turn around and humble and make yourself small in this incredible arena and exposed to everybody simultaneously i mean i what could you imagine asking from somebody who's already kind of broken enough to have put themselves in that situation and then to ask this of them, that's, that is a lot to, to ask from a human being. Absolutely. And I, I, look, I think it's, you know, we've picked that one example, but we see this a lot these days because I think a lot of people across different mediums and, you know, how many YouTubers have we seen the downfall of such and such a YouTuber or whatever? Yeah. Because they, they build up and build up and build up and then something will break. And that it then just all collapses. And the more people that are watching, the more spectacular that final explosion ends up being. Exactly. And, you know, we've seen this time and time again. We're going to see it again yeah. over and over. Actually, one, one thing I should say so that we 
don't or two things I'll say. So we don't get in trouble <laughs> from anybody. Mm-hmm. But one is obviously I think both of us do obviously hold immense sympathy and empathy for the people who some of these figures have done things to who have also been exposed in these shameful ways and painful. And this is why we are no fans of people like this. And while we can still imagine that the collapse is awful for them, obviously it is still not commensurate with usually the harm that these figures have done to a wide swath of people. And then the second thing I wanted to say, and it's something that I'm interested in with some of the talk uh, dialogue that i've had on the subreddit maybe you are yourself with the life coaching disordered people but what do you do if somebody comes to you and this is the kind of mess they bring to you and they're like okay i want to make amends or i want to try and be better but this is what i have done like this is kind of the weight of my sins where do we go from here and if you're if you're the person who wants to be a counselor or a life coach or a therapist or something like that you want to be able to have an answer of how to receive somebody who is in that place. And to do that, you have to be able to humanize them. You have to be willing to say, yes, I see what you've done and it's awful and we're not going to make light of that, but you know, we're going to try and salvage what we can and you can maybe be more than just your abuse or your criminality. Let's, we're we're going to try and make you whole, make you human again. And so mm-hmm. for people who might be listening, who are saying, you know, if they switched off, we can't listen to these guys having sympathy for war criminals or domestic criminals or terrorists or things like that. But then it's just how do you get people off of those paths if when they're willing to or ready to make a change or desiring of it, you persecute or look down on them? Yeah. I mean, well, so there's a couple of things to clarify that. I mean, first of all, it's empathy, not sympathy. Oh, right? yes, I, I know how he feels. I don't feel bad for him feeling that way. You know, that's, <laughs> that's there. You made your bed, dude. <laughs> I, that's your problem. You know, I know it hurts, but look what you did. Um, yeah. And so I don't think understand, right. This, so I, gosh. So when I went into therapy, I went in there with mixed feelings on how bad the things I had done were. Mm, right. And I mainly, fine very justified very okay with everything whatever and over time you start to pull that apart and look at what you did and how you treated people and for me it's like having the wall taken off your eyes and suddenly look at the mess you made and this comes at the same time that you're learning to understand how you've made other people feel and that's so you're able to just look at all this upset and stress and you know all the arguments you caused all the fights you caused everything that you made worse is just laid out in front of you and dealing with that is the hardest part it was for me that was the hardest part of therapy was accepting that i had done wrong and i had hurt people and dealing with well what do you do with that what do those, and again, the variation of what do I want, but what do those people want from me? Do they want an apology? Do they want a like, crying, begging letter sent to them? What is the way of fixing this? Because you are suddenly confronted with the reality of all that you've done. And when that happens, when your narcissistic world has fallen and that reality is there, you are in that situation, you only have one choice. And that one choice is to face it and accept responsibility for it because you did it 
and now you can't undo it. I mean, look, this, of course, I'm talking about me and I'm talking about things that aren't that bad. You know, there are people who've done much worse things that there's, you know, will bring in legal ramifications and crime and punishment and all of that. But for most of us with just being narcissistic arseholes, you've done it now. What you can do is not do it again. And you can take responsibility for what you have done. And it's going to fucking hurt. I'm sorry if I keep swearing. It's just, it comes out. Oh, it's, please do. I mean, this is why we are not monetized on YouTube. So we can oh, say okay. whatever the fuck we'd like. Excellent. And so, yeah, you have to, if someone's coming to me with this situation, it's like, you need to suck it up now. This is it. This is the point where you do that. And you can't move forward until you do, because actually you kind of have other options. And depending on what the person's done, you might see them do the other option, which is really double down. Yeah. Right. Yep. And and this is, you know, going back to our example of m- m- multiple indictments, man, <laughs> that's the doubling down right there. And it's better to do that then because the alternative is probably going to prison in that situation, which I can understand also wanting to avoid that. Yeah, for me, immediately and forthrightly. <laughs> yeah. And for me, the consequences of admitting my wrongdoings were far less significant. So, you know, I didn't have that to worry about, but it's, uh, that was the hardest part. That was the bit that really brought the pain and the crying and the, I'm a bad person. What do I do now? How can I, Mm -hmm. you know, justify myself after this, all that sort of thing. And yeah, you have to face it, hold it. It's yours. You made that. And now all you can do is not make any more. That's it. And you know, something interesting there that I guess I'll mention again, so sort of sounds like I heard you say that. So let's see if I can say this clearly there was a comment that i wrote relatively recently where i said that it seems like people's minds are naturally structured to not actually enjoying harming other people because even when you're narcissistic or antisocial you usually devalue other people you dehumanize them you see Mm -hmm. them as objects or you see the harm you're doing is no big deal there are a couple people maybe who can be clear-eyed in terms of actually being empathetically open and attuned to somebody, kind of really experiencing their inner life and then hurting them. I think that sometimes I can do that when, as we were talking before about defensive aggression. But I know that there's a reason why I also try to avoid that is because for me, it's fucking painful. It's sort of like you're talking about the realization of the harm you just, you do to others. For me, it is feeling that harm doing to others in the moment while I'm doing it. And yeah, I mean, I just another place, maybe I'll try to clarify my thoughts on how it feels, but unpleasant is one of them. And you kind of talking about how, when it maybe clicks into place for you of, wait a second, like this was a person and what I did to them actually hurt them. Like, this is what it feels like. And when that comes together, I mean, part of the reason why you tried to not see them as a person or you tried to say that what I did was right is because you didn't actually want to think, I really did this bad thing. I really did this thing that's harmful. I have no justification. And so when you finally get that kind of taken away from you, you see, no, I just did this because it's what I wanted and there's no other reason and I just have to accept it. And that is brutal and agonizing. Absolutely. I totally agree. I think when when we do these things, we know we're doing wrong and we know we're doing harm. 
And what we do is we find a way to make that okay. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it, yeah, we absolutely know we're doing it. We absolutely do. I think you, I totally agree with you. And it, it's, it's that stuff. That's the difficult to face up to part, because I think we can convince ourselves of so much, you know, we really can. And to the point where, you know, as I've said, I'm still grinning at some of the hurt that I've caused. I, I've not yeah, yep. faced a lot of it. Not, not all of it. Some of it I'm cool with, you know, I'll yep. be honest. Yep. Um, and I, I don't know if that's shifting anytime soon either. So clearly we can find a way to turn that off, but I know I'm doing it. I know that was the wrong thing to do that. I did that, that thing that I said or whatever. I know that that was wrong. And I, uh, the indefensible thing is if we didn't know it was wrong, we'd behave like that all the time. And we don't, we know it's wrong. You know, we can turn it on and off. Therefore we do know it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's usually really clear when somebody either tries to hide their actions or they try not to be honest about it or to, you know, reframe it, trying to avoid the crux of the matter. It just shows that the person is trying to avoid owning up to what it really was. Mm -hmm. And, it just is really quite incredible that, or at least to me, that our mind and our psychology so strongly drives us to, no matter what you do, to make it seem that, well, I did what I had to, or what I did was right, and just how intolerable it is to sit there and actually think, I did this, it was wrong, it was my fault, I have nowhere to go, and... Yeah, I, the contortions <laughs> that we go through to avoid that place, which is, I guess, just shame as well or guilt, is incredible. Yeah, yeah. But the only way out is through, in my opinion. It's you've got to face up to it. You've got to accept what you did. Yeah. And you know what? I actually see, I think, a segue, and I'll take that segue for the moment and then maybe cut it off soon because we've been going here for a little while and my partner likes to have use of the apartment. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, I guess another thing that I wanted to, that I can transition into from here is in terms of talking about how difficult it can be to be in these situations and to own up to these things is to talk about the bodily aspect of it. Because even at this point, we're talking about how psychologically difficult it is to own up to some of these things or to try to reconcile some of these ideas and feelings that are going on. But for some people, or no thing for everybody, it manifests even in your body in these very intense ways. And so an example that I'll give for myself is having night terrors where I usually don't remember. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of them. Sometimes I don't. My partner usually reminds me. She mentioned to me last night, she was like, do you remember anything? I was just like, not a goddamn thing. And she said, yeah, you were asleep. And I woke up at one point and you wound up like you were going to punch me. And then you stopped yourself and then you kept on with your night terror, but you drew away and, you know, she was kind of merciful at not getting socked in her sleep in that night. And of course I felt really guilty and bad about it. But at the same time, this is kind of my body and my mind when I am asleep at the wheel, quite literally, mm. um, 
but there are feelings or something that's going on that is so strong while I'm asleep that this is how it expresses itself. And so when you're trying to talk to people about their kind of traumas or feelings or emotions, sometimes they can literally have this powerful of an effect on you of what they force you to do with your body or act it out. And it's not so easy sometimes for people to just tell them the right thing when their own body revolts on them. Absolutely. I mean, gosh, that's, that's a very intense thing there that you've been through. Um, I think the side it's, I, I would say it's probably the BPD side of things that I felt the biggest physical effects from over the years. I am now affirmed. I've never looked into the science behind this. So I don't know how valid any of it is, but I am now completely happily convinced the link between mental health and, and physical health is obscenely real. And the happier you are, the healthier you are and vice versa. And not just, you know, it comes out in a variety of different ways. So, you know, when you spend a number of years of your life wishing you could kill yourself, you tend not to do the little things like brush your teeth religiously, like you should. Consequently, my teeth are a mess now. And that's, you know, that's just one of those things. But I, also, I remember Facken, I think, saying the same thing about being a narcissist and neglecting his health and so saying that his teeth are crumbling at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was the thing. And, you know, now I have a mouthful of teeth that need filling and that sort of thing, if they're all there. And on top of that, though, I think that that constant stress, anxiety, worry feeling that we have eats you up. And, you know, I point to a lot of digestive stress and all kinds of things as a result of it. Before we get to, of course, not sleeping at all or not not getting enough sleep. You know, we talk, how many things have you seen that tell you, you need eight hours sleep? And I think we're all cool with the fact that we all need eight hours sleep. And I couldn't tell you how old I was the last time that happened. Oh, you know, just one interjection. I think it was you, one of your videos, and maybe this is a borderline thing too, especially when I was younger and before I was on Seroquel, which kind of gives me a consistent bedtime. But when I was younger, I, if I tried to go to sleep early, I would toss and turn and never sleep. The only way I could sleep is if I stayed up so late and got so tired that I immediately passed the fuck out. And yeah, it's just something where just that attachment to even sleep being fraught or difficult and not easy to do. You've just described my life now. oops yeah yeah absolutely no that's that's it i sleep much better when i just go to bed to collapse and that's generally how i go to bed i need to be told i'm tired the number of times i'll be asked are you ready to go to bed and i'll say no whilst i'm yawning (laughs) you know it's just ridiculous but i just yeah if i go to bed when i'm not ready to collapse especially if it's just me there on my own then no chance. The The idea of I need more sleep, I should go to bed earlier. That's not for me. That's something other people can do. I've, I've never in my life been able to do that at all. For that one, I'm also blaming the ADHD, right. but, but that has, that has always been a thing in my life. I can, I'd rather have less sleep than go to bed early. Mm, that's real interesting. They're kind of 
also trying to talk about how to discipline or rule your body aside from kind of what it tells you like maybe you're feeling asleep or sleepy you're yawning they're just like nope like not gonna do it just i'd rather be tired in the morning than try to admit defeat and try to go to bed early or something like that and i think mm-hmm. i've heard from a lot of other disordered people and particularly from lila where she just talks about like i feel something but fuck no like this is what we're doing body and you can say whatever you'd like (laughs) this is the agenda this is what's gonna happen and you know the the crazy thing is i'll happily fall asleep on the sofa in the afternoon i'll (laughs) I'll happily do that that's no problem uh but go to bed early or at good consistent time no no that's i need other people there to influence me to do that and even then it's difficult. Yeah, it's sort of interesting that there's kind of this oppositional defiance or kind of desire to be undisciplined of still avoiding even your own bedtime when it would be good for you. But yet that's still being mm-hmm. something that's important. And maybe that's an echo of a time past. And as you said, trying to avoid some of that control. But after that <laughs> fake yawn to help ease transition into signing off from the pod but yeah this has been a lot of fun i kind of have really gotten into it as we've been going along there's still more things that i've got written down there's more of your content for me to listen to in the background of playing a video game at two times speed so i'm sure there's kind of other things that will be interesting to pick up this has been a real great first conversation and it's been nice to have you on the pod and add you to the roster of disordered people working through their shit. Well, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it a great deal. No, uh, absolutely. Well, I have to have you enjoy yourself and kind of flatter you a bit towards the X. We got to get you back again. Right. So yeah. Oh, I'll come back. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'll come back. <laughs> we know what side of the, bread is buttered all right that one escaped me Whoo! don't take that as indicative of anything else uh take your bets <laughs> i'm gonna steal something from somebody else while i'm flatlining here thanks for showing up rich and people be sure to check out his socials as well i've been looking at his youtube you have a patreon and also a twitter and a tiktok you're more responsible than me you do all the self-promotion I try to. I'm. I think I'm awful at it. But you can you can find everything at earlymorningbarking.com. That's my website with everything on it. All right, fantastic. Well, thanks for coming by, and we'll talk again soon. Take care. Catch you later.